Um, and it's just Bilbo. <laughs> He just it, he just attacked the recording table. If anyone can hear some like woofing or like whomping sounds, it's Bilbo slamming his head off the table. Jonathan. We almost did that wrong. <laughs> um, and t- this is the third episode of our week. I don't know. Well, what's our podcast about? Um, I've forgotten. Hi, and welcome to Halfwit <laughs> History, <laughs> a podcast about what's happened this week in history. Yes, that tagline. <laughs> I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. <laughs> um. This, I don't actually think I have any updates this time around. Oh, no, I had some, and then I deleted them because they were sad. Well, that whole last episode was about death, so we don't have yeah. to bring the sad into this one. Well, it was it was about the origin of the V2 rockets with all the, the monkeys named Albert. Oh, no. They were made by Nazis, so we're just going to end it there. Okay. <laughs> so we thought we weren't doing sad, but now Nazis. <laughs> On a happier note... Mine um, aren't happy this time around either, just saying. On a happier note... <laughs> Um, I'm going to start off with an error that I found in the, uh, in the website that I've been using to find different things that are happening within different weeks. And, Uh-oh. uh, this error came to, uh, came when I was looking at June 22nd. And apparently there is an important event that happened June 22nd of 1342. What is that? Bilbo Baggins returns to his home in Bag End. <laughs> With the ring in tow. <laughs> oh, yes, that's extremely important. Speaking of Bilbo, Bilbo, lay down. Lay down, puppy. Yeah, whatever. Our doggo is also Bilbo Baggins, if you haven't heard from the last few episodes, and he is much more awake because we're not recording at night this time. Yeah, he's like wan- wandering around with his stuffed elephant that is possibly the first toy he has not destroyed in the first days of having it. So if you hear a few errant squeaks, that's that's what's going on. <laughs> it has a squeaker hidden deep inside. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> as any good researcher would do, I went into what happened on June 22nd, 1342. And it turns out that June 2nd is the approximate date of um, mid-year's day in the month of Forlife in uh, mid... Uh, oh no, what is that? Middle Earth. Middle Earth, yes. <laughs> Middle Earth time. Um, Mid what? Midgard? No. No. Oh, yeah, I'm like, Middle oh god, Earth. there's a lot of mids in uh, fantasy. Um, <laughs> in Middle Earth, uh, it was specifically made as part of the Hobbit calendar, which is the Shire Reckoning, mm. which is how the website I was using screwed up, because it was listed as an event that happened in 1342, and then space S.R. <laughs> So the Shire, Shire Reckoning oh. <laughs> from a different calendar. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, in I've learned now that Hobbit years, the Hobbit calendar, is 12 months divided up by 30 equal days, and it has one leap year that has five extra days in it. Oh, okay. So instead of our one extra day every four years, they have five, five ex- extra days. Yep. And even months. 
I like the even months. Thing. I like the even months. That would. I know it's like a small thing, but that would make life a little bit easier. Yep. <laughs> Uh, so anyways, we can get back into our real topics now. Mm. Uh, thanks website that confused, uh, our real world life with, uh, Hobbiton. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's the best. <laughs> um, all right. So my first is in 1314. And my, mine is in 1983. Okay. Well then I'm going first. I, I do have two that predate that year. We can switch off to me. All right. Sounds good. I like I like that better. I don't want to do that much talking in a row. All right. So June 23rd, 1314 um, was the the day that began the two-day Battle of Bannockburn, which resulted in a Scottish victory by the King of Scots, Robert the Bruce, against the army of King Edward II of England. Um, and that was in the first war of Scottish independence. I like how they specified first. <laughs> of many to come. Of many. Um, though it didn't bring an overall victory in the war, went on for 14 years. It was a, it was a landmark in Scottish history. Um, so I won't give you a big, long history lecture because Thank I'm God. tempted. <laughs> um, but the breakdown is pretty much that in 1286, the King of Scotland, previous King of Scotland, died um, by falling off his horse. Good job, dude. Um, and the, his only heir was um, a granddaughter who lived in Norway, and she died on the voyage coming to Scotland from Norway. Rough. Yeah, because she was a child. Um, so the lack of a clear heir led to a period known as the Competitors for the Crown of Scotland, um, or the Great Cause, um, where several families laid claim to the throne. Okay. Edward I of England was invited to arbitrate in this decision, but he decided that he wanted to be recognized as the Lord Paramount of Scotland. Essentially, he wanted to be like an overlord kind of deal with Scotland because they didn't have a clear king. So he was like, here's my chance. And so the court that he presided over, and I'm using air quotes over presided, uh. <laughs> the court came to a decision and appointed a king, but Edward reversed the ruling and he summoned the elect, the appointed king, John Balliol, to stand before the English court as a common plaintiff. John renounced his, o his ho homage, 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 that's not it, homage, <laughs> his um, fealty, <clears throat> is the word I'm going to go with, to the king of England, and Edward decided, I'm coming for you, and he invaded Scotland and began the first war of Scottish independence. So several years of fighting followed, where there was one brief invasion of England led by William Wallace, probably best known as being played by Mel Gibson in Braveheart. Yep. <laughs> but you'll never take our freedom. And then they moon everybody. <laughs> oh boy, I've seen that. I've seen it like once, I think, and it was in a history class. And I remember sitting there being like, "This isn't accurate." <laughs> nope. But it was fun. It was a good. It was a fun movie, though. <laughs> So Robert the Bruce was crowned King was crowned King Robert I of Scotland on March 23rd, 1306, uh, with the support of the Scottish Church who were prepared to take his side in defiance of Rome. Ooh, scary. <laughs> in uh, 1320, the Declaration of Arbroath was signed by the Community of the Realm of Scotland and was sent to the Pope, and it affirmed the Scottish independence from England. Um, it wasn't really followed through on. And so in 1327, Edward II of England was deposed and killed. Oh. <laughs> Whoopsies. <clears throat> you, you know, I thought that there wasn't going to be that much death in this one. I'm talking about a battle and a war. Yeah. <laughs> I should have more forewarned you, I suppose. 
Um, so the invasion of the north of England by Robert the Bruce forced Edward III of England to sign the Treaty of Edinburgh, Northampton on May 1st, 1328, effectively ending, in quotation marks, the war. There was a lot of fighting just in general, um, even if, like, the official war was over. Scotland and England did not get along no. at all in this time period. So under the treaty, the English crown had to recognize the full independence of the Kingdom of Scotland and acknowledge Robert the Bruce and his heirs and successors as the rightful rulers. Um, and then to further seal the peace, Robert's son and heir, David, married the sister of Edward III. Um, so keeping it all in the family. Not a bad deal. <clears throat> nah. Um, I did not look up any information on ages or anything, but I can't imagine. Well, maybe they weren't that mismatched. Who knows? I should have. <laughs> um, fun fact, Robert the Bruce's wife actually also died because she fell off a horse. This family has to stay away from horses. <laughs> they they absolutely have to stay away from horses. And boats, apparently, because the one coming from Norway. <laughs> um, so the victory against the English at um, Bannockburn is the most celebrated in Scottish history. And for centuries, the battle has been commemorated in verse and art. Um, the National Trust for Scotland operates the Bannockburn Visitor Center. Um, and though the exact location of the battle is uncertain because, you know, it was 1314 um, and records were not well kept, um, there is a modern monument um, erected in a field above a possible site for the battlefield um, where the warring party parties are believed to have camped. Um, and there's also a statue of Robert the Bruce um, designed by Pilkington Jackson. In the same place. Um, the monument, along with the associated visitor center, is one of the most popular tourist attractions in the area. Huh. So if we ever go to um, Scotland, we should totally check that place out. Visit the possibly fake battle site. Well, you know, when you're dealing with that much time in between, it's probably as accurate as you're going to get. Most likely. No. Um, so that's that was the Battle of Brennockburn. Cool. Um, and Robert the Bruce. There were a lot of details and a lot of killing in between that I kind of left out. I just kind of hit the highlights. Yeah, which was still a lot of killing. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was a lot of death by horse. Yeah, death by horse. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> so I guess we'll switch over to my topic as our Bilbo Baggins tries to sag all of our attention away. <laughs> I hope someone can hear the snorting because it's funny. Mm-hmm. So we're going to go to June 17th of 1983, where uh, I'll just read the little blurb that uh, got me inter interested in it, where Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren exercise a Ooh. werewolf demon from Bill Ramsey. Ooh. Do you know about this one? No, but they were involved in um, several of like the, like, um, like, is it Amityville Horror or is it the other, the exorcism of... Uh, they were involved, they were involved in, a, in lot. a lot of things like that. <laughs> um, so I, I was going to get to it a little bit later, but I'll get to it now. Uh, Ed, Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren um, were the probably not first paranormal investigators, but they had the largest. Definitely the most well-known. Yeah, they were the most well-known. They founded the New England uh, Society for Paranormal Research in uh, 1952, and they had at the time of meeting Bill Ramsey uh, about 7,000 documented case files. Wow. Of which the Amityville Horror Series and all that, related things it. are part of um, their case files. The Conjuring is part of their case files. Oh, that was the other one. Yep. 
Annabelle is part of their oh. case files. <laughs> um, and what was the last one? I'm trying to remember. Oh, I'm a haunting in Connecticut. Oh, good. Um, they were stationed in Connecticut. And the New England Society for Paranormal Research is still there, um, even though they have both passed on. Um mm-hmm. Lorraine Warren actually just passed away um, April 18th of 2019. Oh, wow. Their uh, research facility is still run by their daughter and son-in-law. Keeping it in the family, I see. Yeah, they supposedly had a large team of doctors and investigators and a lot of people working for the research center uh, or the research society. But when you visit their website, you can only see four people, I think is what I looked. Um, and it's just Bilbo. <laughs> he, just a- <laughs> he just attacked the recording table. If anyone can hear some, like, woofing or, like, whomping sounds, it's Bilbo slamming his head off the table. He's, <clears throat> he's immensely is- interested in the microphone this time. For some reason, he's never been before, and he's shedding immensely also. So anyways... Um, it's only a few other people. Um, most of them seem to be ex-military or ex-police, um, and they're still running the place as more of a museum these days. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, that's, all, that's all I got to say about that. But anyways, let's talk about <laughs> the Werewolf of London. Yes, please. Um, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill Ramsey's story starts when he's a young kid. Werewolf, be quiet. <laughs> He's going to just give, do the Foley work for us. Yeah. You know, make some... All the panting and howling. sounds as he throws his elephant around by the trunk. <laughs> oh. Easy, puppy. Bill, can you lay down? Nope. While he's anyway. distracted. Uh, so Bill Ramsey's story starts when he was a young kid. He was outside and describes feeling a cool rush sweep over his body and a foul smell fill the air. Hmm. And then he doesn't remember what happened. Um, his parents described to him... That when they came outside, they heard him snarling and howling, and they watched as their nine-year-old kid ripped a fence out of the ground oh, and no. proceeded to destroy it, even though it still had its like concrete <sighs> block attached to it. Oh no! Oh uh, no! Yep. So when he finally calmed down, they pulled him inside, and he passed out, and uh, he didn't have an episode like that for a long time. Well, that's good. Well, a long time isn't never. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> um, so. Uh, it wasn't until he was married and had kids that the similar feelings started returning. By the age of 24, he started having nightmares of himself walking behind his wife, and then she would turn around, see him, and scream, and he would wake up in a cold sweat. Hmm. And this would happen frequently. Um, and he apparently had talked about it with people. Um, it wasn't like a secret. It was, he just always had these night terrors. Hmm. Um, and then one of you these nights... You have night terrors sometimes. Yeah. I don't know what they're about, though. I've been kicked a couple times. (laughs) I'm sorry. Maybe I'm a werewolf. Oh, 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 yikes. Oh, don't say that. (laughs) Now I'm worried. (laughs) Yeah, bud. I feel you. (laughs) So one night he woke up abruptly as usual from his night terrors and claimed that he was also startled when he woke to find the sounds of an animal in his bedroom growling. Oh, no. Um, Oh. Much like Just that. Just like that. <laughs> um, Thank but you, he would, the work. But he would end up finding out that it was him. He woke oh. up and he was growling and panting like a wild animal. Oh, kind of like 
Yeah, kind of like how you're conscious and snoring sometimes. Maybe. <laughs> you are the new werewolf of London, apparently. Well, of Marlborough. Listen, the only times <laughs> I wake up howling is when I get a leg cramp while I'm still asleep. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Ooh. Who knows? Maybe that's what it was. You're going to be a very talkative puppy this time, aren't yeah. you? Yeah. Oh, buddy, no. So his last outburst, uh, or this this uh, growling endeavor, was the, the last outburst that he had for supposedly another 15 years. Um, I should mention a lot of the things that I saw. They kept mentioning 15 years, 15 years, and then small incidents every 18 months. None of the timelines seemed to match up oh. <laughs> from well. like the reporting <laughs> that I was seeing because like uh, it, the, there was a, a bunch of dates thrown around, and it just didn't seem like it was uh, all that sound. Um, Fair enough. So anyways, uh, in 1983 um, was when uh, Ramsey's first werewolf attack really took place. Um, he was at a bar with some friends. Oh, and I should mention that 1983 is when, like, all of this happens. So, like, he, okay. he goes from having, like, small in- incidents every 18 months or 15 years, whatever people are mm-hmm. claiming, to having, like, all of this happen in 1983. Uh-huh. Um and this was his first real werewolf attack. He was at a bar with some friends, and he felt cold sweats sweep over his body, oh. and he smelled like the rotten smell. Um, the first he claims this is the first time since the childhood incident that mm. he had the combination of the two things again: the the cold feeling and the bad smell. Um, so he went to the bathroom uh, and excused himself from his friends, where he claimed when he looked in the mirror, he saw a wolf staring back at him. Oh, so that's di- alarming. Yep. So, distraught, he gathered uh, a friend to take him home in a cab, and while in the cab, Ramsey's hands become claws, and this gets described a lot by people, and I found a video that was talking, that was people who were around talking about this, and everyone Oh, I thought you were going to say there was a video of him, like, going to the wolf, and I was like, whoa! There's a video of people they interviewed, where that's always the thing they describe, is his hands become claws. So, other people saw it too, then? Supposedly, okay. we're talking about well, paranormal. So right, right, but in they—that's what they thought they saw. It wasn't yep. just him thinking he saw it. Yep. So okay. people have mentioned that his hands become claws, um, and in this incident, he decided to try and bite his friend's leg while they were in the back of the cab. Oh, that's the, not nice. No, the cab driver pulls over and opens the back door to get Ramsey out, and he's already passed out. Oh. Yep. Okay. So, at a bar, could be drunken stupor, we're just gonna go with this man's a werewolf for now. Could be some sort of, like, drunken rage or... Yep. But I like werewolf better, yes, yeah. So werewolf yeah. is cooler. That's definitely No police were involved this time. Alright. Um, later... Speaking of police? We have all the Foley work today. <laughs> Maybe we should record in the daytime more often. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um... So later the same year, Ramsey would then check himself into a hospital with intense chest pains. Um, mm-hmm. He thought he was having a heart attack. Speaking uh, of heart attacks, <laughs> I'm just saying. Yeah, maybe we got a werewolf uh, in Massachusetts. Oh, yikes! Who knows? I mean, Bigfoot man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they didn't find anything wrong with Ramsey uh, when he got to uh, when he got to the hospital. So they started doing blood work. And while they were pulling his blood, Ramsey had a transformation um, oh. and snarled at the nurses before lunging at them. Oh. 
Yep. So police arrived at the scene and tried to handcuff him, but he kept raging even with the handcuffs attached. Mm. And they eventually had to get a tranquilizer and sedate him. Oh, boy. So they just sedated him, brought him to the police station jail, and the next morning, Ramsey was fine, and the officers let him go? Uh, mm. Not really sure why. He did attack someone, and they're just like, well, this guy is of sound mind this morning and has no recollection, so we'll let him go. Wait, but... <sighs> yeah, there's a lot of problems with that. Yeah. So, anyways, this happens two more times. Oh, jeez. So, he brought himself in when feeling feeling familiar chest pains, cold air, and bad smell. Um, and he brought himself into the hospital again, this time knowing what was going on. And I guess after the last incident, he had a deal with the with the hospital and police that if he felt this, he would go in and go to the exact same hospital so that they, they recognized him okay. and knew what needed to happen. All right. Um, I mean, fair. Yep. That's so, probably the best plan yet. Yeah. From from all I've seen, it seems like Bill Ramsey was a fairly reasonable person. Right. Just not in wolf form. <laughs> Just not when he transformed. Um, so he went to the same hospital. They had a bunch of people there that uh, were able to restrain him. Um, and they checked him into the police station. And uh, he was, I think he injured a police officer that Oops. time when he was trying to transform um they check him in they leave him there and uh again they or this time he and ramsey ends up bringing up to the police officers that maybe he should check himself into a mental institution that he needs mental help um don't know what happened but eventually everyone decided against it Uh, and he was let free but uh, okay (laughs) mental health standards aren't good today let alone yeah That's true. When when was this again? What year? 19... 1983. Oh, jeez. Okay. Not too long ago, but... Was that after they got rid of all of the... Where they, like, essentially got rid of all the mental health institutions? Or it must have been before it. In London? I don't know much about London history. Oh, sorry. I'm thinking of the U.S. No, no, no. This is in <clears throat> London. Right, right, right. Yes. Yeah, it's South End by Sea is where this occurred. It's the werewolf of London, Kylie. Get your shit together. Yes. <laughs> Interestingly enough, the song has nothing to do with this incident. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so the the song is based on um, the artist. I forget what his name is. They they were him and a friend were watching the 1935 movie Werewolf of London. Oh, and they decided, hey, this would be cool to make a song out of. I wonder if this guy just watched that and like you know how like sometimes if you fall asleep like watching something, it can like. Omelette du fromage. Yeah, Jonathan, the only French you know is omelette du fromage. Um, From Dexter's lab. Mm-hmm. That's what happened. He <laughs> fell asleep listening to a French tape, and the French tape kept yep. skipping over the same line. Yep, so the only French he learned was the omelette du fromage. And that's the only thing he could say. Yep. No, but I'm, I'm now I'm wondering if, like, maybe he watched that, and, like, it had some sort of, like, it connected somewhere in his brain. Maybe. And some sort of other, like, psychological issue was going on in it. Just kind of all melded together, and this is what manifested. Yeah. Hi. Do you not like us talking about werewolves, Bilbo? <laughs> Does it feel like an attack on you, bud? So, anyways, the I said it would happen two more times in that year. Um, this time, he was allegedly doing a citizen's arrest of a teenage prostitute. Um, when he got to the station, the officers described the girl as running from the car into the station, and an officer going to Ramsey, to, it goes out to Ramsey to see if he's all right. Um, 
at this point, uh, most of the officers, I guess, know Ramsey. Probably. I mean, I would remember the man who claimed to turn into a werewolf. <laughs> yeah. Um, at, th- at this point, he had never claimed any of that. Oh, okay. So uh, I, I think mean... he mentioned to somebody that he saw a wolf in the um, in the mirror that one time, but that time wasn't documented by police, so that's all hearsay. Oh, okay. And, um, but at, th- at this point, he just thinks, and I mean, Ramsey says it at one point, that he thinks he's mentally ill. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not sure what to do about it, and he doesn't want the stigma of being mentally ill on him because otherwise he's a normal functioning human with a wife and kids and oh kids oh yeah okay um so he goes Bilbo you gotta be you gotta be done buddy <laughs> when the officer goes to um talk with Ramsey I it, Ramsey gets out of the car and the officer's trying to talk him down and Ramsey starts uh he, he's kind of like in a in a in a state, mm-hmm. um, and the officer's trying to talk him down, and he ends up putting his hand on his shoulder to calm him down, and that's when Ramsey starts snarling again and uh, ends up choking the officer. Um, and all the all of the police officers uh, describe this officer. I forget his name, but they describe him as being much larger than Ramsey, and Ramsey mm-hmm. just immediately took him to the ground and started oh. choking him. Yikes! Um, and it took six officers to, to subdue Ramsey wow. and get him off of um, the officer that he was trying to choke. They get him into a cell and mention that Ramsey was still in a frenzy that time. Normally, he kind of comes out of these frenzies kind of quickly. Kind of sounds like a really bad drug trip. Yeah. Um, and like the <laughs> like only... really bad So one. like we, we know that it happened once when he was at a bar, so maybe he was out of it. But like yeah. as, as a kid, right, I don't know. Right, the kid one is iffy, unless like... Unless maybe, it was made up, it was Maybe advocated. his parents were into stuff and he somehow got into something. Yeah. Who knows? So the officers kept him in a cell, and he was still going wild. They describe him as like a wild animal, just snarling and trying to escape the cell. Jeez. And eventually, he gets his head and his arm all the way up to his shoulder stuck outside the cell Aye. window. So, like, you know those, ah. like, old-timey cells kind of have, like, a window yeah. with, like, no bars or anything, just yeah. a window? Um, he gets his head through there, oh. and, like, the there was a video, and the officer was showing, like, the, the door that it happened on. And, like, it almost doesn't look big enough for someone Uh. to get their head through. But he gets his head through there, and he gets one arm through there, and he was just stuck and just snarling and, uh, like, swiping at officers as they were trying to approach him. And eventually they tranquilize him, Uh and he passes out. And then the officer was describing uh, how they all had to get, like, a bath of, like, lots of soap and try and unstick him from the window (laughs) because he was just stuck in the window. So while he's passed out, they're just like lathering him up with soap and trying to push him back through the window. Oh my goodness. Yep. Um, So this time they keep him for a while um, because, I mean, they're worried for his health at this point. Right, I would be. Yeah, they probably should have been worried earlier. Yep. Um, So they keep him and uh, eventually he comes out of the rage and they keep him for a few days. They get him to a hospital where they determine he was not under the influence of alcohol or drugs. Okay. Um, there goes my theory. Yeah, and uh, because they kept him there for a few days and he had more incidents in those few days, but they knew that he didn't have any drugs on him because wow. he was in the police cell. Um, so they brought him to a hospital and got him some MRIs and some other tests and they had him do some psych evaluations and just... Hmm. Nothing came up wrong. There was just there was just nothing wrong with Bill Ramsey. Um, and at this point, um, a local paper heard that some famous American demonologists, oh, the Warrens, were um, actually in London around this time. Um, yeah, so they they were in London, and 
uh, oh, I was about to get ahead of myself. Anyways, so no uh, skipping. Yep, sorry. So local paper heard that they they were in town, um, and were trying to get the discussion started between the Warrens and Ramsey to get them together. Um, Lorraine Warren was enthralled by the possibility of a werewolf. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Yep. Um, But Ed Warren was not ready to cross over from paranormal to werewolves in fear of ruining their reputations. I could see that. Um, And this is where I was going to talk about uh, what what we talked about earlier, who the Warrens were and everything. Oh, yeah. Um, Because they do do have a reputation. Yes, they Um, do. They have many, many case files. They claim to have done a lot of things. There's a lot of people who claim that everything they've done is 100% fabricated. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's others who claim to witness all the stuff that they, they had done. So, interesting. Um, I also found it interesting that their New England Society of Paranormal Research, the acronym is NESPER, and ESPER is a very common <laughs> way to describe someone with paranormal abilities. Yeah. Yep. Um, That's funny. Yep. So anyways, back to Ramsey, the local paper in Lorraine were both able to persuade Ed Warren and Bill Ramsey to meet and undertake the challenge of discovering what was wrong with Bill. As Ramsey put it um, in a video, I, I watched the video of him oh. talking about this. Um, the hospitals, the mental health system, and the police system had all failed him. So even though he did not believe in exorcisms or paranormal at all, he was adamant that he did not believe that any of this was real. And he was kind of shocked that they were like, oh, there may be a werewolf in you kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I, he didn't believe in any of that. Yeah. Um, but because everything failed him, he's like, whatever, I'll take whatever help I can get. Um, Desperation. And $20,000. Oh, hey, there you go. <laughs> the, the local paper ended I up paying him $20,000 to um, have rights to publish his story and to help him get him and his wife over to Connecticut to work with the Warrens to figure out what was wrong with him. Heck yes, sign me up. Where's my inner werewolf? Yeah. <laughs> so the exorcism was conducted by an associate of the Warrens, Bishop Robert McKenna. Um, the Warrens were watching through a recording room, and six officers armed with stun guns were protecting the bishop. Uh, Ramsey sat bored, listening to the bishop speak in Latin for some time. He was visibly annoyed with the situation that he had subjected himself to. Uh, eventually the bishop said something that must have struck a chord in, um... As Ramsey flew into a frenzy, Uh-oh. at its worst, the Ra- the Warrens described seeing Ramsey's neck bulging larger and larger, and his ears were starting to point, and his hands were becoming claws. The becoming claws thing just always popping up with all the stories yeah. about Ramsey. Um, the ears Maybe. and neck thing were very new. Maybe he had really long fingernails. Maybe. <laughs> um, there's actually a few pictures, because as I said, the Warrens were watching through a recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a few still images from that exorcism. <clears throat> and I feel bad. Do I? I don't know. But I laughed when I saw them, because one of the pictures is just the bishop talking over Ramsey, and he's making, like, very classic, like, horror monster hands, like... Uh, exactly, exactly <laughs> what you just did. Just bringing his hands like all the way open, but his fingers like curling under, and he's very clearly making a like <sighs> face as his hands are like rearing back and like looking like they're striking at the bishop. Um, so I don't know if that motion is what they what everyone's been calling claws, but his hands were just like really retracted and hmm. like in like striking formation right. i guess like bilbo's scary hands yeah the scary <laughs> hands that we use for bilbo baggins oh no <laughs> he just looked very concerned hi bud um but anyways um 
So it got really, uh, really scary, according to the Warrens. They were in the video that I saw talking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, right at like the worst of this, um, he just kind of fell limp. And at that point, he, the bishop declared him exercised, and he's never had a issue again. Wow. So that was all in 1993. Uh, I mean, oh. 1983. Oh, okay. Um, and then in 1992, Ramsey and the Warrens would appear on a show called Sightings and describe the, all of the events. And that's the show that I ended up watching. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I, I watched oh. that and they described everything. Supposedly, Ramsey hasn't been in trouble since the exorcism. And as far as I can tell, he's remained completely off the radar since the interview in 1992. I could find no information on Bill Ramsey after that wow. date. So that, that interview on the Sightings TV show was the last time I think anyone really paid attention to Bill Ramsey, the werewolf of London. Huh. I mean, all right. I I guess, yeah, if I had gotten a name for myself as being like the werewolf of London, I probably would try to fly into the radar after two. <laughs> yeah. Well, a lot of the um, other stories that I saw about like people trying to cover this um, called him the werewolf of London, but technically he is the werewolf of South End by Sea or South End on Sea. All right. Yep. Cool. So that's it. That's all I got for our werewolf friend. All right. Yours was much more interesting than mine. Oh. Yours was funny. I'm just kind of like, people died. Robert the Bruce, William Wallace. (laughs) So you get for being a historian. I don't know what I'm talking about, so I find the fun things. Yeah, that's fair. Anyways, what's your your next one? All right. So my my second second, um, event, I suppose, um, happened on June 20th, 1567. Um, on June 20th, 1567, a few days after Scottish rebels, rebels apprehended Mary, Queen of Scots, um, servants of Jane, Jane, James Douglas, I'm having a hard time. James Douglas, the fourth Earl of Morton, allegedly found a silver casket of eight letters, two marriage contracts, and 12 sonnets. Um, the marriage contracts apparently proved that Mary had agreed to marry Bothwell before his divorce. Hey, wait. Oh, you know what? When I copy and when I transpose my information, I move things around. Bothwell is James Hepburn, fourth Earl of Bothwell. Okay. Yes. Um, so the casket was found in the possession of him, of Bothwell, and who is the third husband of Mary. Hold on a second. You keep saying casket. (laughs) Yes, a casket. Not, not like a death casket, not like a death, like, so in this, in this instance, a casket is like a small chest. Okay. Like a small, personal size chest. Kind of like that chest that you have downstairs that you used for LARPing. Oh, okay. Like, that that's what's considered, like, a casket. Usually they're, like, metal, though. So, like, they're, you know, more sturdy. Um, So, no, not like a dead body casket, Jonathan. Yeah, I thought they were gonna, you're just talking about items in this casket <laughs> no. and you're ignoring the fact that they're all with, like, a dead body or something. No, 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 no. <laughs> that would be even more dramatic. <clears throat> If Continue. it had been that way, I would have been even more. I would have been more excited about. It. Actually, I have to say the um, Renaissance, so like the Tudors and Elizabeth the First, is probably my favorite time period of history. So as soon as I saw this, I was like, I have to do it. <laughs> so it's more for my amusement than anything else. <laughs> um, so James Hepburn was the third husband of Mary Queen of Scots. Um, supposedly, the letters directly implicate Mary in a plot with Hepburn to murder her second husband, Henry Stewart, Lord Darnley. Um, so Elizabeth, so when these letters are found, when these accusations started flying, Elizabeth I ordered a commission to investigate the matter of Mary's involvement in Darnley's murder. 
Um, in 50, and in December of 1568, the letters were produced at the Royal Commission as proof against Mary by the Scottish lords who opposed her rule, who were led by her brother. Oh. Half-brother. Sorry, half-brother. Um, by her, by his mother, by her mother. So she was the son of, she was the daughter of James and Mary de Guise. Mary de Guise had a son who was not the son of the king from a prior marriage. Okay. So half-brother who, who was not in line for the throne. Okay. Lots of I don't think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, um, in particular, the text of the letters was taken to imply that Queen Mary had colluded with Bothwell in the murder of Lord Darnley. So there were things that definitely seemed to implicate explicitly that she had prior knowledge that he was going to die. Yeah. Um, so Lord, uh, Lord Darnley had been recuperating from smallpox when the house in which he was staying was bombed. Um, later it was found that barrels full of gunpowder had been hidden beneath his bedroom. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but the bombs didn't seem to be what had killed him. It appeared he had been strangled. Oh. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> the plot thickens. The plot does thicken. So his bizarre death was interpreted as evidence of a plot to kill him. Clearly strangulation. Um, and suspicion soon turned to Mary herself. It was common knowledge that she didn't love him and had been appalled by his arrogance and carousing, and had differed with him about matters um, both political and personal. Um, he, had, he had also infuriated her by attempting to rule equally alongside her. Mm. Um, which, which, as queen, like, if the roles had been reversed, if he had been king, there would have been no expectation that she would rule equally with him. Right. So she was of the mindset that, I am queen, you are my consort, you have no right to rule with me. Right. Um... Oh, I lost my place. All right. <clears throat> so, and then in 1566, when she was four months pregnant, Darnley had worked with a group of anti-Mary uh, conspirators to murder her friend and private sec secretary, David Rizzio, in front of her. Oh. Like, in her chambers, in front of her, she watched him die. Oh. So that's not nice. By, like, some random people, like, that she didn't know? Like, just... Um, Anti-Mary conspirators? Right, and so, like, op they opposed her rule... But it's unclear if he actually was present when they killed her secretary or if it was just very, very clear to her that he was the, the, he was the reason it happened. Right. Um, either way, the assassination was the last straw. Um, and she convened a meeting of advisors to figure out how to divorce him. But the real question is, did she conspire to murder him? Hmm. I don't know. Assassination is pretty much a deal breaker in most you, relationships. You know, you would think. <laughs> you would think that that would be the end of it. <laughs> so uh, her contemporary supporters dismissed the casket letters as complete forgeries, or a lot of people supposed that they were letters written by her servant, Mary Bean. So the authenticity of the letters um, that are now known only as copies, by copies, like the, the originals are gone. Yeah. Um, they continue to be debated. Clearly, um, some historians argue that they were forgeries concocted in order to discredit Mary and ensure that Elizabeth I supported the kingship of the infant James IV of Scotland um, rather than his own mother. Um, the historian John Hungerford Pollen in 1901 compared um, by comparing two genuine letters drafted by Mary presented a subtle argument that the various surviving copies and translations of the casket letters could not be used as evidence of their original authorship by Mary. So he compared 
letters that we know were written by her and that are original and the let the copies of the letters that um a lot of it is based on like grammar and sentence structure and just you know the flow of the writing a lot of people argue that the casket letters did not match her writing style at all hmm. um so but who i mean who knows were they anti-mary conspirators <laughs> i have no idea are you just gonna keep repeating that incessantly yeah <laughs> um all right so and then so in the historian John Guy writes in his book um, on Mary uh, titled My Heart is My Own, the sole evidence that she was a part of the murder plot comes from the casket letters. There is no other proof. Her guilt or innocence depends on whether the letters are true or false. Um, so they were the only piece of evidence even remotely linking her to this conspiracy to kill her husband. Um, which, you know, I find it really interesting that... Her the supposed involvement of her in the death of her husband is what essentially led her to her downfall. Whereas like kings over the years have killed people left and right, and no one said snot. Yeah, in in front of people, <laughs> right? In front of people, like what's up with that? How come like Darnley didn't get in trouble for killing her secretary? Right. There's like this ridiculous dichotomy where even though she's queen, she still doesn't have the same level of respect or authority as a man. Yeah, I feel like it has to at least in part come from, um, like, at that time, like, everyone expected women to act certain ways. And, like, even as in a position of power, they expected women to act with more grace and stuff like that. Whereas, like, men in power were frightening and powerful and, like, oh, if the king killed someone, don't get on his bad side today. You might be next. But if, like, a queen killed someone, it it was more like... Oh, the lady's acting out like she's not being like her royal ladiness. Yeah. <laughs> maybe she's lost her, you know, maybe she's yeah. not competent or, you know, whatever. Yeah, it wasn't viewed as yeah. like scary and power. It was viewed as like losing yourself. Lose, yeah, losing yeah. your control. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's break down the different um, aspects of the casket letters because they weren't all letters. Um, so the sonnets. John Guy writes um, of how the sonnets found in the casket were said to be Mary's own reflections on her adultery with Bothwell and proof that her consuming passion for Bothwell gave her a powerful motive for murder. However, he points out that they are highly unlikely to be genuine as they are extremely clumsy and would pass with only the greatest difficulty as the work of a native French speaker. Mm. And like Mary was Mary grew up in the French court. She left Scotland at a very young age, was sent to France, and that's where she grew up because she was betrothed to the Dauphin. Yeah. Um, then she married the Dauphin, and then he died, and she came back to Scotland. Um, so she spent most of her life speaking French and writing French. So, so she should have been eloquent in her in her poems. <laughs> one would think. Yeah. <laughs> um, so they don't, and they they do not fit with the genre of courtly love poetry that Mary would have been familiar with, especially coming from France. Um, he also points out that they can be read as a sort of religious poetry. So there's a um, if you look at it from like a religious perspective, as not to like a physical man kind of thing, that it very much matches with the kind of like religious poetry that was wrote, written at the day. Um, so you could argue that it it was actually a religious poem. Um, so the marriage contracts that were found, there were two of them. Um, so one of the marriage contracts from the silver casket was said to be dated um, April 5th of 1567. Um, so over a month before Mary and Bothwell's marriage, like officially, like that we know of. But he points out that it's a blatant forgery 
because the wording of the contract inc- includes extracts from the um, Ainsley Taverns Bond, which was a document that was produced after the gathering of the Lords at Ainsley Tavern um, in 1567. So there was this document that is referenced in one of the marriage contracts. <laughs> that, that happened after. Happened after the date, after the time it was dated. Whoops. Right, exactly. So way you go, dum-dum. <laughs> um, so the other contract this guy describes as innocuous because it is less a contract than a written promise by Mary to Mary Bothwell. So it's saying that, you know, when the time comes, it's I like, will marry it, it, It's like someone wrote something on, like, a napkin and, like, slipped it to him. And, right, yeah, yeah, kind of deal. So, like, it's it's more of a, I want to marry you than a, let's kill my husband so I can marry you right. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so the letters are the third part of the casket letters, and they're probably, you know, some of the most damning bits of it. Um, so the first letters, one and two, were referred to as the short and the long Glasgow letters, um, and they were the most damning. Um, and the second one, if genuine, was complete proof that Mary was Bothwell's lover before their marriage and that she had been involved in Darling's murder. Um, it contained seemingly graphic allusions to the murder plot, interspersed with its author's protestations of longing and desire for her lover. Um, but Guy explains that the case against Mary rested on seven key extracts from the letters. Um, and if you really want to, like, if anyone really wants to go, like, in depth on this, um, his book titled, sorry, I have to find the right spot, um, titled My Heart is My Own, The Life of Mary, Queen of Scots, has several chapters that are completely dedicated to the casket letters. Um, and I haven't, I haven't read it. But I might now. <laughs> it's um, I, everything about the Tudors is fascinating and just full of intrigue and guile and just it's very interesting um, time period. So if anyone is interested in learning more specifically about Mary or the casket letters, um, I would probably say go to that book or there. I'm sure there are tons of other books that um covered as well. Yeah, this was just the easiest one that I found to access. <laughs> um, so, um, he argues that um. Only the fifth extract of the, the seven key points um, said, Think also if you will not find some invention more secret by physic, for he is to take physic at Cragmillar and the bath also, and shall not come forth of a long time. Um, he That was claimed to be connected to the murder plot. Um, he, Guy, so the author says that this a- extract was meant to prove that Mary wanted Darnley to be poisoned while he was at Cragmillar. Um, but it is not evident of the plot. It has no evidence relating her to the plot, which actually killed him, which was the, you know, explosion and actual strangulation. <laughs> yeah, the strangling that was followed by a cover-up explosion. Um, so he said that it's been regarded as a later later forged interpolation because it was missed in the material that was sent um, to sent by the people who discovered it to William Cecil. Cecil? Cecil. Um, who was the person who laid out, like, the big accusations formally. Um, so, um, it, and it only used the final accusations laid against Mary um, by the Confederate lords to prove that Darnley's illness, which was actually syphilis, hmm. fun fact, was caused by poisoning. So he was not, he was not poisoning, but they tried to claim that he was. Um, and, it, and, like, it doesn't, like the author says, and, like, based off what I've read, it doesn't make any sense um though as he was already he already had smallpox so like whatever (laughs) what time period was this 1568 didn't people already have like lots of documentation about syphilis at this time it's really weird that um 
Because, like, it was, it you know, it's called the French disease and the Italian disease. And, like, everyone called it the other country's disease. Like, it had been floating around for a while. and Yeah, but I think, but I mean, like, up until they, so, like, cephalus and, like, gonorrhea and, like, all that stuff were kind of, like, interchangeable at the time. Like, people weren't really sure which was which and, like, what caused what. Like, they didn't really know what caused it. So the different manifestations of it were, like, unclear until you got to a certain point. It's just weird that they would justify it as poisoning when they kind of knew what syphilis was. But if it was early stages, they probably wouldn't have recognized it as syphilis. It wasn't until, you know, like, the really obvious, like, the shank and all that stuff that people would be like, oh, that's syphilis. Yeah. Um, And, you know, the eventual nose falling off. and mm, Yes. Fun, fun. Um, There's a lot of talk of death and yucky things this time around um sorry it's all my fault (laughs) i just had to try and have a good old chat about werewolves and paranormal (laughs) and back to death we go an intrigue and mystery no one knows if they're the the intrigue and mystery i'll give you that that's what i'm thought that's why i love these is that no one has any freaking clue whether or not they were real and like both sides argue full strength that they were real or they were not yeah like it's just a fascinating thing that it was so divisive. Um, okay, so um, eventually, so like basically, guy, um, the historian uh, guy thinks that some of it was orig- some of it was real, and some of it was not. So he thinks that there are around fifteen hundred to eighteen hundred words that are genuine, um, but that leaves around a um, thousand to twelve hundred words that are likely not. So he, what he tends he kind of things happened is that um they were likely pulled from later letters or forgeries um and that it it's very possible that old and new pages were somehow spliced together to make up a composite document to convince the like not inquisition but like the 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 ju- the judgment um of Cecil and Cecil and uh, Elizabeth that Mary was guilty. I was about to say no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. No one expects and, the Spanish and Inquisition. And neither did I when you just said Inquisition. I'm glad that that wasn't the, I thought we were about to take a big turn. Hard left turn to the Spanish Inquisition. No. Um yeah, so it could be argued um is what it appears to me is that some of it some of it is real, some of it is not. And that um, someone had a real good time trying to make it look like she was very, very guilty. Um, so, yeah. So, if anyone is interested in more of this kind of thing, um, there are tons of books on it. It's a hugely fascinating topic. Um, most of my information came from an article um, from the Tudor Society website um, and my good old friend Wikipedia. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so that is the casket letter. So no one, no one knows. Huh. Um, people have theories. People have very dedicated opinions. Um, but there's really, and like, because the letters are gone, um, they were likely destroyed sometime after this, the, the like council thing. Um, and like the thought is that her, um, um, her son got rid of them after <laughs> the fact. But the problem is that nobody, not, no one knows. Yeah. Like, it's a mystery that will probably never be solved because the originals are gone. Here's my plug for archiving. Keep your documents in safe places if they are, have any sort of value. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so store everything you own in a casket. Apparently. <laughs> no, because they're gone. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> no caskets for you. <laughs> Not a dead body casket. No, don't. Yeah, that would just be gross. Or maybe in a dead body casket. No, decomposition is not a fun thing to deal with paper. Ooh, fine. <laughs> I find enough dead bugs 
in like boxes to know that like they leave a mark. Oh, oh, <laughs> Kylie. Oh, well, that's gonna be our show. Um, uh, yeah, so you can find us at halfwit-history.com. Uh, that has links to all the different places you can listen to us at if you want to share that with anybody else. Um, you can find us, um, or you can email us at halfwitpod at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at halfwithistory. Um, and again, we have a Patreon. Maybe you can start flattering us now. We're on episode three. Yeah, I know, maybe. yeah. If, if anyone's feeling real generous or confident in our abilities, I guess. <laughs> maybe I should probably make that Patreon look a little more official. Yeah, maybe that should be um, your project for this week. <laughs> maybe. Um, and also, I keep forgetting to do it the past two episodes, but also thank you to The Fisherman for the use of yes. our theme song and ending song, Another Day. Yeah. Uh, you can find him on SoundCloud. We always post his SoundCloud link in the description of the episodes. Well, we've listened to some of his other stuff, and it's very, it's really neat. Yeah. It's fun. Just some guy, and I, I think he's from uh, Greece, and he just likes making music, and uh, he, he was fun to talk to, and I talked to him. There you go. So um, anyways, on to our fun facts before we close out the episode entirely. Do you have right. any fun facts? I have a fun fact. Okay. So on Do you have just one? No, well, I have several. Okay, okay, okay. Okay. Um, so... We'll go with this one. On June 21st, 1905, the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre was born in Paris. He was dubbed the father of existentialism. And in 1964, he rejected the Nobel Prize for Literature when it was awarded to him. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess uh, he, do, he does follow the existentialist yes, uh, beliefs. So he, he followed his creed and stuck to it, even though he could have got a cool statue. Yep. So, uh, my fun fact is June 18th of, uh, 1178, oh. five monks in Canterbury reported an explosion on the moon. And that was actually recorded. They recorded this. Oh. Yep. So I, I kind of want to look into that one more. And yeah, maybe that'll that's be, really cool. Maybe that'll be next year's thing. You should definitely check that out. Yeah. Or if anybody else wants to, go look up, uh, you know, June 18th, 1178. Five monks in Canterbury report an explosion on the moon. Yeah, all right. Um, okay, so my next one is also from June 18th. Oh? But it's from 2006, which barely squeaked by our 10-year rule. Barely, barely. Yep. So um, the prelate Catherine Jeffords Scorey was elected presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church in the United States of America becoming the first woman chosen as a church-wide leader in the 400-year history of the Anglican Communion. Hmm. And I was like, you go, girl! <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I guess our last fun fact before we end is uh, June 22nd, 1633, Galileo Galilee, yeah, I kind of stuck with space, uh, forced was forced to recant his Copernican views that the Earth orbits the sun by the Pope. Oh. And fun fact, fun fact within the fun fact, uh, the Vatican only admits that it's wrong on October 31st of 1992. Ouch. 1992 is when the Vatican admits oh. that the, that the oh, earth does no. in fact revolve around the sun. I feel like that's like somebody fucked up somewhere along the way and was like, we meant to recant, we meant to say this ages ago. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Oh, poor Galileo! That's embarrassing. <laughs> he, <the> church. <laughs> he had a rough time after he was uh, cast out by the church. Yeah, he did not have a good go of it for the rest of his life. 
1992, guys. Come that's, on. Yowzers. Jeez, Louise. <laughs> that's that's too that's too long. <laughs> yeah. By far too long. <laughs> Anyways, we hope you enjoyed our show. We as always enjoyed recording it. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.